0: Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because they'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. Support for this episode comes from Missouri-based Kuat
1: Racks. For trailblazing rides or Class 4 river drops, Kuat makes racks that help get your gear where you want to be. Their new Class 4 kayak rack locks, folds, and stacks up easily for hauling and stowing your gear. Not to mention, you'll want to keep a Class 4 on the roof at all times because it actually looks good up there. Kuat, because you love your bike and your kayak. Get your next adventure on your vehicle at KUAT, that's K-U-A-T, dot com.
2: If you ever catch an animal in a trap at a certain place, there's a reason he's there. He's not just there just because. Key on those locations. I can set 100 traps and catch 10 animals, or I can set 10 traps and catch 10 animals. It's location. Yeah. You've got to learn the habitat.
1: You're listening to the Ozark Podcast. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Ozark Podcast. We are... Here in Van Buren, Arkansas, we have made the trek down, and uh, we've got another special guest for the listeners today. Mm
0: -hmm. Looking forward to it. It's uh, getting into a realm that I am not well-versed in, so looking forward to this conversation.
1: Yeah, we've got Mike Yancey with us of Pine Hollow trapping supplies, Pine Hollow longbows, and you know, the more I talk to you, the more I'm realizing there's probably a hundred things we could interview you about (laughs) as far as stories and, and hunting all over the world. I mean, we're we're sitting in a room surrounded by furs and antlers and birds and feathers and all kinds of stuff. we got a warthog right here. Yeah. And I know that a lot of this stuff isn't here in the Ozarks. And so thanks for letting us come down here and talk with you.
2: Well, you're welcome. And it's good to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely.
1: So before I started, you know, getting down here and seeing like, wow, this guy, he's the real deal. He does it all. I, I really wanted to do a trapping episode. I mean, we're here, we're mm-hmm. in the Ozarks. It's winter and and furs getting good. It's it's already been good. I think yes. we've we've kind of gone through a, a really cold stint and and so I wanted to talk about trapping. A lot fewer people trap than used to back in the day. Mm-hmm. But you, we were just talking with you and there's actually kind of been a little bit of a resurgence lately. You're seeing more and more people starting to trap. But before we go there, tell me just a little bit about yourself, your background even as far back as growing up here in the Ozarks. I know you've been here your whole life. You're, mm-hmm. you're multiple generation um, Ozarkin. Right. Just tell me what it was like growing up here in the Ozarks.
2: Well, when I was a kid, you know, it was all dirt roads. Our world was pretty small. You know, we was raised on a farm, uh, lived off of it, didn't go anywhere. And I guess that they say you want what you didn't have when you was a kid. And I want to go somewhere Okay. because mm. uh, we didn't go a lot. And so that's one reason I probably travel so much. Uh, I just have that wanderlust, I guess, of different places. But it um, it was just a way of life, and it still is, you know. And it's just turned into businesses. But I, I really didn't have a choice, you know. It's just how we lived. And one skill goes into the other almost automatically, you know. Whether it be the bow hunting or turkey hunting or trapping, they all complement each other with the knowledge that you gain from the one. But uh, I was uh, 13 when I started trapping seriously. Okay. And um, I was always really small. Uh, I learned real quick I wasn't going to be a linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) And so I could excel in the woods, you know. And we had a great childhood, man. The guys I went to school with, we all did it. Uh, It was – We shot bows on the practice field before school, and now you'd be arrested. We all had guns in our (laughs) trucks. We all carried knives. We didn't kill anybody. I skint muskrats in the parking lot of school before the school started in the mornings, I'd check my traps and uh, and skin muskrats in the parking lot. And everybody just thought it was cool, you know? You just and, throw them in the truck and head yeah, to school. Yeah. And well, I'd check them before school. Right. And then when I get to school, I'd have time and if, or whatever time I had, I'd start skinning right there in the parking <laughs> lot. And they just thought it was neat. The coaches would come up and talk to you. What'd you get today? You know, and just neat. But um, like I say, I was 13 when I got started. And I'll be 63 this year. So I, this is my 50th year trapping. Okay. And I missed one year when I was building this house. Okay. And I was just so busy, I couldn't do it. But, um,
1: and that's all been for the most part here in the Ozarks.
2: That's where I, I cut my teeth. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then now I've caught coyotes in five states. Okay. I, I trap all over. I, uh, um, trap Texas every year, trap Oklahoma and, and Arkansas. And it's, uh, I don't know. You get a if you've got a passion for it, it's very hard, and it's uh, you got to have a work ethic like no other, and there it's uh, it can be kind of a year-round deal where you're preparing for season mm-hmm. even before it gets here, and especially with the bow stuff, it's the same way. You know, you can used to when I wasn't so busy. If I was going to be going on a bear hunt or something in Canada that summer, I'd be sitting watching TV and make and fletching arrows on the coffee table, you know, and okay. it just made things kind of a cycle. Yeah. And uh we commented a little bit before we got to going on this that w- we don't waste anything. It's uh all the stuff that I do, there's when I get done with a the carcass, there's just almost nothing left. There's mm-hmm. there's no waste. We mm-hmm. we 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 uh we put it to use. It's not a j people have this conception of just killing it for the fur and this and that. We, we've got so many uses, you know, it's just endless. And with the fur market as bad as it is right now with the economy, mm-hmm. the world markets are bad. Um, Russia and Ur- Ukraine are the, the biggest problem with the fur market right now with that war. They are, they're two huge countries that are – uh, consumers of the fur. There's a lot of demand they, for they fur have to in those have countries. it because of the winter. Yeah. yeah. It's not a luxury item, it's a necessity item. And all that that gets processed goes through the Ukraine. So that's shut down. So the the foreign market is just almost non-existent. Mm. Yeah. So you gotta develop uh either craft markets or little niches here and there. Yeah. And you just gotta find that. And by being in the business for so long, I'm able to find those places that some might not yeah and um there is such a huge i don't know that it's necessarily a a resurgence of it but there's a huge new growth in it of people part of it is wanting to learn more nature type skills Mm -hmm. and um that and other is people wanting to manage their properties for predators yeah they've got a little chicken flock the fox are coming in wiping her your chickens out the coons are getting in there and getting them at night so they're protecting their their stuff but others they just want to try to help their turkeys out and manage the wildlife the way we want it yeah Not necessarily the way everything else wants it but it's uh and it's a great activity little kids i i take kids on classes you know that or they get it they get a hold of it pretty quick and go with it you know you can see the excitement in them.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to me. I feel like a, a lot of people who trap or even just trapping in general is is largely misunderstood. Totally. And I, for whatever reason, I don't know, there's a stigma around it a little mm-hmm. bit of, of, I don't know, it's it's kind of a little too backwoods or it's, uh, you were saying like it's kind of a lazy man's way of, of harvesting game. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I, I'm just curious for someone who's been doing it for so long, where do you think that stigma comes from? And, and you know, why why is that inaccurate in your view? Well,
2: part of it is uh, I think the movie industry and the the t- TV period um, has portrayed it in a bad light with a lot this rainbows and unicorns and fairy tale worlds. They've humanized animals and the nature's cruel, mm. and if you want to see something cruel, you catch a coyote that's got 90% of his body covered in mange and they're about to freeze to death because they have no hair. That's cruel. Mm-hmm. That is a long, slow, miserable death. That you know, they're our traps hold them, they don't cut them, they literally just hold them till we get there. A lot of times, if the wind's blowing and they can't hear the truck coming, they're laying there sound asleep when we get there, yeah. Mm. Harming an animal is the farthest thing from what we want to do. Right. If they ever will give it a chance and see what I do and what all these other people do, it's very ethical and it's very effective And every biologist, in every state in the United States. Trapping is the only proven effective method to manage predators. Mm. You know, it, it's not harmful. Yeah. It serves so much purpose, you know, not just for the disease, but for the, for the management of the resource like we want to help the turkeys or the, the quail or the deer.
1: Right, exactly.
2: What about the folks that'll say, you know, why don't you go give them a
0: fair chance per se or go after them with a gun or a bow or, or mm-hmm. something like that? And you're even talking media. I mean, there's, yeah. there's some media around, you know, the, the backwoods redneck trapper and then the, the kind of hero with a gun that mm-hmm. I imagine even plays that even more. I mean— yeah,
2: I think they justify that mentality saying, well, I'm not against hunting. Do it with a gun, trappings. That th- For some reason, they had this misconception that it's easy. Nothing could be further from the truth. You have to know each animal. They have habits, they have weaknesses, mm. and you try to capitalize on those to the best of your ability to make them step in a spot that's as big as a coffee cup, mm-hmm. and they've got thousands of acres to roam in. And that trap is not a magic potion with a bait or lure that's going to catch every animal that you're after. Right? It, it It's specific. And we set sets for bobcats. We set sets for coyotes. We set for raccoons. They're all, and that's not to say you won't incidentally catch one or another, sure. but they all have certain places in the habitat that they they are gonna be right, and so there's a lot of knowledge goes into that. I, I didn't get good at it until probably the late '80s, and it just all started clicking. Right, and it's amazing. You just gotta learn learn what you're looking for. And I we mentioned earlier that really your best turkey hunters that I've ever known, and and I used to travel four and five states a year. To turkey hunt and have been around some of the best in the world but if you'll get to talking to them almost all of your top producing turkey hunters are trappers they just have a an ability to read the terrain know where that gobbler's going to come and it uh it's just a sense yeah if, I,
1: i've heard that before too just anecdotally the the best hunters are the ones who like you said you understand on the landscape different types of animals are going to gravitate to different situations Mm -hmm. and different habitats and so you learn what's out there and what to look for and especially i mean just like anything else if you're out there trapping and and kind of using that as you're doing that but scouting while you're doing that sure when the spring rolls around and you're ready for turkey season you've been out there you maybe you've even seen some flocks out there where they're kind of hanging out and you know the terrain and the lay of the land a little bit better so just the time the sheer time that it takes to run a trap line mm-hmm. to check it every day or every three days, depending on where you're at and the regulations um, and what kind of traps you got. You're just spending so much more time out there, and right. it and it makes you a – I can only imagine just a, a much better woodsman right? Um, just all around.
2: Yeah, and that's true. And, in fact, in a survival situation, everybody has this uh, kind of image of I'm going to – they have a knife that big, you know, and <laughs> strapped to their leg. Yeah. You know, it's like crocodile done big as their femur. You know, this is a knife. <laughs> They're gonna whack down a tree and make a bow and kill a deer mm-hmm. in a survival situation. Almost nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, you know, a half a dozen traps will go way further if you were in a true survival situation than that big knife and making you a bow. <laughs> and, and I've bow hunted my whole life, but the fact of whacking out a bow out of a tree and and killing something with it to eat is uh not gonna happen just to everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot but, easier so. said than done. Yeah.
1: Well I wanna I wanna take a moment right here. Well, I'm gonna pause on the trap and we'll come back to that. Kay. You mentioned bow hunting, mm-hmm. um, and we were just Kyle, we were just walking around out in your shop, one of your two shops, mm-hmm. which is awesome that you even have one shop, but let mm-hmm. alone two cool shops where it's a skin and shed and you've got your retail storefront out here. Yeah. Um, you make homemade custom handmade long bows right. um, out of Osage Orange and, mm-hmm. and you and Cedar and all kinds of different stuff you were showing us. Um, these are amazing bows. You don't see a whole lot of bows like this mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, so many they're people
0: have beautiful.
1: have switched over to the compounds mm-hmm. and this high speed, um, and they're going for that technology. What about the, the trad bows and the longbows? Um, kind of attracted you to wanting to start making them and, yeah. and using them?
2: That's what opened all these doors, really, is um, my grandmother on my dad's side would find arrowheads in her garden when I was a little bitty kid, and she'd give every one of them to me, and I've got every one of them, and I've got a, a huge collection, and it just fascinated me that you could take that stone point, and you were the next person to touch it from hundreds or even thousands of years ago, and it just, the idea of them being made here and that's another thing that's unique about where we live in Arkansas. This is one of the few states that has everything you need to make it. Mm. I mean, mm. we've got nevaculite that's nowhere else in the world for some of the best points. Nevaculite. Nevaculite, okay. yeah, for um, making stone points. There's different types of chert. We've got the Osage Orange, uh, all the animals that you need to, to make the type of primitive archery that I specialize in. We've got it right here, all the materials. Really? And um, it, they always told me my whole life, you know, when I was a little kid, that um, the Indians made the bows out of the—we called them arc or horse apples. Right. And that's all I knew is that, that they made them out of that kind of wood. And it just kind of started eating at me. And I killed my first animal when I was 13. Everything started when I was 13, I guess. I don't know if I started trapping when I was <laughs> Became 13. a man at 13. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh Killed a rabbit with a longbow when I was 13, and that just hooked me. Yeah. And um, it just went from there. And then I bow hunted all through the the 70s um, with a recurve. And then like in 77 or 78, I got a compound and uh, thought that was the greatest thing in the world now. And now the the bows that I make— will outshoot those early compounds, you know. It's, really? Yeah. The
1: technology's just Y'all, come that far well, on the compounds. In, in compounds, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but the, the traditional bows were always good. Right. You know, and uh, but I went through that stage all through the 90s of uh, hunting with compounds all over the country.
0: That's when they got huge, right? I yeah. Mean, that's when in the, the compound revolution oh, happened yeah. in, in the U.S. That makes sense.
2: But um, I got a book from a guy in Tahlequah on how to build the Cherokee-style bows, and it just came natural. I I Mm. read it, and um, the first time a a guy let me borrow a copy of it, and I thought, man, there's more to that than I want to mess with. Yeah. And it just got to chewing on me and eating at me that I couldn't get it out of my head, so I bought a copy. And um, I just read it and read it and got everything I could get my hands on on how to build them and just went from there. And and the the very first— tree that i ever cut was on this place and i've killed tons of animals with bows out of that tree and to this day that was in the early 90s and those bows are still going today no way i've killed caribou in the northwest territories uh bears in manitoba uh all the stuff in africa with you know it it literally opened doors like it, it was just unbelievable the connections that how the dominoes started falling of uh just one door opened another. I was just in the right place at the right time. I was on a caribou hunt in the Northwest Territories with a guy that was uh, one of the owners of the Traditional Bowhunter magazine. Okay, and uh, it just like we got stranded together during nine eleven. <laughs> we were in the air when nine eleven happened. No way, and they made us land and get off the plane. I said, well, I don't get off here. They said, well, you do now. So, <laughs> you don't have much of a choice, Mike. Yeah, uh, they told us the, the United States had been attacked, oh, you know, and they come shoving a camera in our face because we were the first plane to land in Canada when that happened. And they, for some reason, they just swarmed that airport and were interviewing us like we knew what was going on. Yeah. And we'd been <laughs> up on the tundra for for two weeks, oh, my you know. Goodness. And uh, so we were stranded in Canada for a week, and we just became friends. And he said, hey, why don't you write some articles for us? Because he knew I'd been doing a little bit for uh, some magazines. And I said, okay, sure. Well, it, it just exploded. Mm-hmm. And um, even my Africa deal, this will be my sixth trip to Africa, seventh trip to Africa.
1: <laughs> coming up, your seventh or yeah, just recently?
2: S- no, this this one coming up okay. will be my seventh. Okay. And uh, I was on a turkey hunt in Wyoming and I was going up on top of a mountain to get some cell service to check my website, see how many orders I was buying. Yeah. And I got a message and it said, uh, bow hunting Africa. And so I opened it up and he said introduced himself and said, I've been following you for a few years. Would you like to come to Africa and, and bow hunt? And I said, Heck yeah. And so we'd love to do that. <laughs> we've been bow hunting ever since. Yeah. years ago, magazines were the thing you know hunting magazines were it and outdoor riders you know they would uh and i got in on the tail end of it an outdoor rider 20 years ago you could just print your own money now they they gave you the clothes they gave you the weapon uh to contract an article you know i mean you were you were writing for that hunt right the hunt was free they they paid your way there I got in on the very tail end of all that, and then it kind of started going to the Internet and the, uh, the hunting channels on TV. Right. So, But, but I still write uh, for articles in uh, the traditional bow hunter. I used to do a lot for the Primitive Archer and different ones. Uh, Muzzleloader Magazine, do stuff for them. But uh, all of that just opened doors. I, I have guys that call me up. And guys that I respected, and a lot of them are dead now. I, I'm kind of the old guy now. But when I was, say, 13 and reading those magazines like Judd Cooney out in Colorado killing antelope like crazy, I just looked up to him. And um, now, man, those guys would call me up, you mm-hmm. know, and, and talk, you yeah. know. And a uh, lot, like I say, a lot of them are gone, you know. And I just had such a huge respect for those guys. They were, innovators they were inventors they uh, built some really good product you know it's uh but it just blew my mind that they would talk to me just like we're talking right now but right. It, it's like-minded people and it's still that way mm-hmm. you know you. I, I just got back from a show in michigan and i was just blown away that i hadn't been there in about seven eight years and they still remember me and we talked it was like a family reunion yeah. you know what you know it's just uh It's a tight knit group. Umarex
1: just dropped their brand new groundbreaking rifle, the Complete NCR. Unlike other air rifles that require air compressors, hand pumps, or other bulky external tanks, the Complete saves you time and money with the introduction of a pre charged, ready to use nitrogen cartridge. The Nitro Air cartridges deliver up to 45 high velocity shots without having to recharge making it the perfect air gun to take to the woods. I'm telling y'all, this is a game changer in the air gun world. Check out all the specs at umarexusa.com and use our discount code OZARKAIR for 12% off your order. You also do flintlock rifles, Mm -hmm. which I was just blown away by. handmade flintlock rifle. The the beauty of these things and you know you hand it to me i'm like oh this is like something you'd see in a museum mm-hmm. over the fire mantle or right. a family heirloom but this is a, I you mean you're using these guns functioning works of art and and you're making them from i mean you showed us the the stock of wood just the chunk of wood that you've got and you're making yeah. them into that that beautiful piece of what looks like art to me but it's really a functional tool like you're right. saying tell me about that how you got into the flintlock rifle
2: it's it's the same deal as with the bows um I don't try to copy a particular style but i am very respectful of the old timers and their methods and their school of building and um it to me it's a uh, the ultimate compliment to follow a builder whether it be a flintlock or uh bows but all my stuff a lot of it is historically correct it's uh it, 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 my bows look like they fell off an Indian a thousand years ago. My <laughs> guns look like they were in a revolutionary war. Yeah. And, and those guns have a history from the the golden age around the revolutionary war period where they reached their artistic peak. They were Germans that that race of people has the most ability of craftsmen of any race of people i've ever been around they just have a a natural born ability to carve and do some of the most beautiful work in a rifle and those old germans when they came over in the 1700s they brought that gun building with them Mm -hmm. that's where we got our guns Mm -hmm. and as they came here they were uh, they were more european they were shorter blockier but when they got to the united states they had the ability for the resources. The resource was here. So they started making them a little bigger, longer, sleeker, and beautifully ornate. The, they built utilitarian-type guns that a farmer could afford, but the rich guys, it was always that market of highs and lows where the you got your working class and then your rich guys, and those rich ones... Were are pretty much the ones that survived because they were showpieces. Mm-hmm. Right. And they were put up, and uh, weren't all those guns built as dolled up as some of those I showed you out mm-hmm. there. A lot of them were very functional, but they have a simplicity to them that is as pretty as these bows. They're, there's a beauty in simplicity, too, not necessarily highly carved. Yeah. But uh, they're very functional, Deadly accurate. Uh, I kill squirrels with them. the The small calibers are just like shooting a a BB gun that smokes. You know, they yeah. they don't kick. Um, and, are they measured in the same
1: way that you know modern ammunition is, as far as caliber? As far as the caliber, yeah, they are, yeah. Okay.
2: You calibrate the bore, but uh, they go anywhere from like 32 up to 62. Okay, you know, and you just match the caliber to the game that you want. But uh, and and like the bows. I've killed stuff all over the world with those flintlocks. They're, they're not – people look at the bows and the guns as, oh, that's cool. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is, it, is it accurate? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. We'd have starved to death, you know, right. <laughs> uh, for, for both of them. Yeah. If it wasn't for the bows or those kinds of guns, we'd have lost some wars and, and we'd have starved to death. But they're very functional.
1: With the the type of people that use those, how would you describe I mean, and maybe even describing yourself, like what is it that makes someone opt for using a traditional bow hmm. or a mm-hmm. flintlock rifle versus I mean, obviously technology has come a long way sure. and like we have you know weapons that can oh, kill out the reach out thousands, that, yes. you know, just thousands of yards away. So it's uh it, there's there's a disadvantage as far as the technical uh, technological advancements. Um, you're putting yourself kind of behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm. So why why do you opt for it um, when you have other options?
2: It's um, you've got your stages. You got your beginner stage where you just want to get anything, and then you, um, as you progress, you want to kill everything, and uh, you, so you naturally <laughs> so you go, go from anything yeah, to everything. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I kind of liken it to. Uh, bass fishing or fly fishing. Okay. It, you're going to catch a lot of fish on a fly rod, but it's a lot different than a, than a bass tournament. Mm-hmm. But they're both... It's it's an art, mm-hmm. and it's um, probably the reason that they don't is because the effort involved to get good at it.
1: The reason but why people don't pick don't, them up and don't choose those? Don't take those methods. Okay.
2: But almost all of them... Eventually, in their hunting, we'll get to that point where I've killed a hunter deer with a compound. I want to do something different. This ain't as much fun as it used to be. And they'll get a traditional bow, and it puts a spark back in them like a doe they killed behind the house is the biggest trophy (laughs) they've ever killed in their life. And and, and the bows that I build, a lot of that, that's a neat part of it because you can start out before season, build a bow, build a string, build a set of arrows, build the whole thing. And the, everything you do in that process, you you can just almost picture a deer twitch when you put the stone point on there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, it all becomes part of you, you know, and, uh, it makes things come full circle. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's a, like another part of not wasting where, uh, the effort, the outcome is worth the effort. Yeah. And uh, the adventure of it, you start – it's like wilderness hunts or guided hunts. You, uh, There's a lot of effort goes into a do-it-yourself wilderness hunt, but there's a sense of satisfaction when you make mm-hmm. it work. And it's uh, – I think that's part of the the reward of it. And I see the beauty in those guns and the bows as much as anything – Every Matthew's bow looks just like they're cold, they're impersonal, they're just like a boat anchor, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not warm. But all of this stuff is, it, uh, and especially if you build it yourself, it becomes part of you. And half the time I've bled on them, you know, especially on those guns. I'm using chisels and uh, gouges and I'm bleeding as much as, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's stuff. A literal up. piece of you. In, yes, in yeah. uh-huh.
0: I mean, I can remember the first, I mean, average rainbow trout I Mm -hmm. caught on a fly that I had tied myself. Mm -hmm. Probably probably better than any fish I've caught on traditional tackle just growing up once I got good at it kind of thing. You know, those stages. Remember the first big fish and then first fish on a fly rod and then the first fish on a fly that I tied myself and then the first big fish on the fly I tied myself. Yeah you know that one's obviously going to have way more satisfaction in it than just the yeah i caught a big fish so i could see oh, yeah. how you start out with a gun then you move to a crossbow and you know a couple years later you mm-hmm. get the compound and then after a few seasons of that especially if you're really into it you're like man i want to i just want to go even more niche and just yeah, figure yeah. it out i mean i totally see it
1: yeah
2: yeah
0: so if someone's listening and they've kind of they're at the point
1: where man i've i've harvested 100 deer mm-hmm. and with my compound bow and i've just, i've done it And they've kind of lost that spark for deer hunting you're saying you're saying you need to pick up a longbow You're saying there's a cure Mm. there's a cure oh yeah you you can catch excitement you can catch that bug again
2: and uh a 32 or a 36 caliber flintlock yeah in gray squirrels will put that being a kid again i mean you'll be so excited trying to load that thing back up (laughs) yeah i mean it's like you just get that spark it's literally like being a kid again And it puts the fun back in it. But people need to slow down and smell the roses. You know, uh, when you were talking about catching that first trout on a a fly you tied, that brought to my mind, I used to fish these uh, little creeks up in the mountains for brownies Mm. with ultralights. And, you know, as soon as you set that hook and that little dude breaks water, he can be a six-incher, you know, and they fight like crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And— Nothing much more fun, you know. Mm-mm. But people just got to start just enjoy it all, you know. I mean, we do a lot of primitive camping years ago. I don't so much anymore. I kind of like the comfort of the travel trailer. But I uh, <laughs> used to do a lot of, sure enough, mountain man stuff, dressing buck skins and, and do the whole nine yards. I was going
1: to ask because if you're talking about squirrel hunting with the flintlock rifle, I'm like, yeah. at what point are you throwing on skins and a I got I hat? got a
2: full set of buck skins. I got all the leggings, the moccasins. Everything, the, the long shirts, you name it. But, and that's all got its place. One of the most memorable hunts I ever had, I was camped in the high plains of New Mexico antelope hunting by myself in a teepee. And just the uh, coolest thing ever, you know. <laughs> it's just neat. And on that ranch that I was on, there was pictographs in the cliffs, you know. It, mm. I was doing what they were doing a 1,000 years ago yeah. with the very same stuff. Yeah, You know, same type bows out there just wandering around. That's cool. Yeah.
1: It, it it really takes it for me as I'm hearing you talk. It it takes something that's already such a kind of a, a connection to the earth and experience when you're mm-hmm. hunting and you're interacting with nature and you're, you're out on the landscape, you're observing just everything that's going on, and then you're taking it one step further to now tie that back in with the history of that land and what was going on 100, 200, 300 years ago. Yeah. And just tying all that together and doing that in 2024, yeah, it's like it's a it's a way different experience. It's it's being able to connect so many more things than you would if you were just out there with like you know the newest gun, the newest set of camo, mm-hmm. that, the high powered rifle. Yeah, yeah.
2: I, I never had to have. You know, naturally, uh, I guess when you're a kid, you kind of look up to that stuff that the guys that were good had. You know, you wanted it, and to a point, I did, but um, eventually. I just realized that newer and better isn't necessarily better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Get good at what you've got and Mm -hmm. appreciate it and learn that. But um, there's this connection that is lacking. Um, I'm doing on this place what was done thousands of years ago. I dug a water line to my shop here a few years back, and it rained before I completely covered the waterline line and the dirt that came out of that hole, there was an arrowhead laying right on top of that dirt that I dug out. And I thought, well, some other guy had a bow shop here <laughs>
1: <laughs> a thousand years ago.
2: You know, but there's nothing cooler than – and I, I find arrowheads every year still right here on this place, and they're doing the exact same thing that I'm was that i doing now Yeah, back then. You know, and I don't liken myself in any way to – to their abilities, you know, they had to do it to make a living. Yeah, we literally to survive. I, I do it, you know, and, and I want to get stuff, you know. I mean, I, I'm out there to kill something, mm-hmm. and and I do, but still, we don't have to do that, you know. But it's, uh, but I do. We're very effective at what we do. Sure, and we're the same way with the trapping. We're not out there to hurt anything. Yeah, we we respect the animals to the utmost, and yeah. it's it's all done is good as we can possibly do it to our abilities yeah you know something that's that's interesting there as i'm listening to you
1: talk and it's something that i think some people who who maybe don't trap or or maybe don't even hunt and, and if you're listening you don't hunt you know i'm curious if, if this would resonate with some of these people but you say you know i, I am out there to kill something mm-hmm. and, and i don't have to like i can go get meat from the store and, and all that but in the same sentence you're saying but i want to do it ethically i want to do it right I want to do it as efficiently and as lethal as possible sure. so that that animal doesn't suffer and I respect the animal. For someone who doesn't get that, how you can tie those two things together of like, well I don't have to hunt but I do and how how do you tie those two seemingly conflicting ethics mm-hmm. together? Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure.
2: Yeah, I think it's a total respect, really. It's just like living on this farm, we you know, we were talking earlier that we raise 90% of what we eat, we, we grow it, we can it. And uh, it's a part of it is a health choice, too. We know where it comes from. It's not poisoned. It's not pesticided. Mm-hmm. It's uh, totally healthy. Uh, we're not completely organic. I will use uh, a commercial fertilizer, but we use as much compost and organic stuff as we can. But for the meat, there's nothing healthier than wild meat. And there's nothing industrial farming and ranching has taken over because they have to produce so much. And and I don't fault them. Mm-hmm. You know, we we feed the world, and they have to do it with limited space. They they turn out a lot of stuff. A hobby farm, we can do it how we want. You yeah, know? we still Just for you kind we, of subsistence yeah, farming. We still want to raise a lot, and I sell a lot. We we have a a stand, and we sell off the farm. Uh, we grow a lot of produce that we sell, and we've got a growing clientele every year that they want to know where it comes from mm-hmm. and there's a noticeable difference in the quality mm-hmm. and uh It's just amazing the the business that we pick up every year on the farm here from people buying produce from us so but I think again, the animals that we harvest it uh those things are raised on their own out there there's no antibiotics you know uh, it's just good healthy meat mm-hmm. and it's done respectfully to me there's nothing probably more cruel than commercial chicken houses yeah. you know <laughs> i mean what kind of life is that you know they're just crammed in there they're grown off in four weeks or six weeks whatever mm-hmm. and <laughs> They don't have much of a future.
1: No. And to think all of the diseases, when you congregate that many animals in one confined space, like all the diseases. can't be good. Like you said, you don't know where, you're in the store. I have so much more connection with a deer. Like, I know where this came from. I see, I've seen where it lives. I have a general idea of like what's around, what it's eating. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know how it died. And I know it didn't die of sickness and disease. And to me, like there's, I would eat that 10 times out of 10, over something where I'm like, I don't know where this comes from. Yeah. It could be pumped full of like toxins and, and oh yeah. Who knows what else is in this. Yes. Uh it's just the the meat side I think is a is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. And with trapping, I think a lot of people don't realize that like you're you eat ninety percent of what you trap. You said there's only
2: what you don't eat, possums and coyotes. And coyotes. And of course the skunks. For skunks, but, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But most everything else, you're eat,
2: you're eating. Yeah, we don't just eat every bit of it, but we do eat them. Yeah, and one thing I'd like to point out, and a lot of people have no concept of this. This is my fiftieth year. There's I still catch as many animals as I did. I'm not wiping them out. It's a management, and we on the ranches that we trap in Texas. We still catch the same amount every year. They're just healthier. We have less mange. We have less disease. And um, nothing will bring out a crybaby more than a mountain lion or a zebra. You kill one of those two, and they will bombard you with hate mail. And nothing could be further from the truth. Killing a male mountain lion is more beneficial to the whole mountain lion population than anything in the world you could do. Mm. Those big toms, all their deal is to kill stuff and to kill baby mountain lions to make that female come back in heat. Mm. And it's been biologically proven, the more toms you take out of a habitat, the bigger the the population will increase because that female is able to raise those babies, they become mature, and the population grows hmm. and uh, that's why those states that allow it they have such a strict quota on the females you can kill a lot of males yeah but what, if a certain quota of females is killed they shut it down right away you, you can hurt the numbers by killing too many females but killing toms and those mountain lions increases the population. Really? Bears, too. Those in certain areas, especially, those, bay- those big boars will kill those little ones to make those females come in heat a year sooner.
1: Yeah. That's uh, they call it infanticide, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We
1: remember talking with Myron Means about
2: that, mm-hmm. the Game and Fish biologist. Yeah. And people have no clue how cruel nature can be. Yeah. And there's nothing tastes better than a mountain lion. That is the best eaten meat you will ever eat in your life. I'm not kidding a bit. It is every piece of it is good. It's not tough. And, you know, they're like 100, 145 pounds, you know, and they're they're good. Mm. It's just amazing how good they are. When I think of trapping, the first thing I kind of think
1: of is if you have access to water, like a beaver, Mm -hmm. what would be the 101 of what you need to know about beaver trapping? everything from scouting it to putting in a
2: set, what would be kind of your go-to set for someone just wanting to start? Beavers are the most absolute easiest animal out there to trap. They leave sign that is so easy to tell what's going on. They have slides where they're coming out of the water. All you have to do is set a 330 bear in those slides where they're coming in and out of the water and they're gonna be there. It, uh, it kills them instantly. Nothing else is going to get in there if you put it in the water like it ought to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, that beaver's going to be, it, it's just instantly killed. And it's as humane as you can get. And uh, you can use some scents and lures to, to attract them with the beaver caster. Mm-hmm. And that'll bring, it's a territorial response. They'll want to come smell that and think another beaver is in their territory. And it—those uh, those 330 coni bears are just deadly on beavers.
1: Yeah. Is that kind of your exclusive go-to, or, or what?
2: That are snares.
1: You will you mm-hmm. will snare a beaver, and
2: occasionally footholds on a drowning wire where they can go to deep water and drown. Yeah, but you need to get them where they'll drown mm-hmm. and do it quick.
1: Yeah. Well, you were talking about scouting, and you were mm-hmm. talking about it's easy to spot out the sign. Yeah. The chew marks on the trees. I mean, that shows up like that. that headlights.
2: And they're, they're dams, you know, and a lot of times you can see their den entrances. Uh, where they've dug their dens. They don't always build the lodges like they do. In some places, they'll dig holes up in the banks and okay. have their dens there. And if you can look, you can see the, the muddy runways in the water. It'll leave a little mud trail where for the first few feet when they're coming out of the dam yeah. or, or out of their lodge, and you can set a 330 there and catch them that way too. But they just leave a lot of sign. Yeah, all, all the water animals are that way. They're very easy. Yeah, to tell where they're at. Lots
1: of mud around to put prints in. And those beavers—they smear that tail, so you can always kind of. Typically, you can see a smear on the top of the track, right?
2: They they do, but what they do a lot of times is they drag it mud up and leaves and stuff out of the bottom, and they'll make what's called a castor mound, and it's a scent mound where they're telling other beavers, "Hey, this is my place," mm-hmm. and uh, that's where you're preying on their territorial deal with this scent of mm. another beaver and that makes them want to come check it out. Yeah. But yeah, that's what they're doing. And they're leaving sign Oak leaves. Don't leave very many tracks. You know, when you're in the <laughs> yeah. woods, you can't tell what's walked through there, but in that mud, you can see all the, like the, the raccoons, the muskrats, the mink, the beaver, uh, all of those are leaving tracks in the mud that's so easy to tell Yeah, and just study it. You know, that's one neat thing about Texas that we don't have here is the ability to tell what those predators are doing out in the plains in wide open country because it's a lot of sand and you can sure learn a lot in a short time by studying those tracks. Yeah. It's hard to figure out what a coyote's
0: doing in those arcs. If you can't see it, (laughs) yeah, yeah, grass, the the, the
2: meadows, hay meadows and stuff, they're there, but you just got to know eventually. And once you learn those spots – If you ever catch an animal in a trap at a certain place, start paying attention. There's a reason he's there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's not just there just because. It's like bass fishing. 90% of your fish are in 10% of your water. Mm. Same thing on the animals. There's a reason they're where they're at. So key on those locations.
1: Yeah. Those are target-rich environments.
2: We have, like in the Ozarks, ridges where they're going to cross – A road where a ridge crosses a road, uh, that's like the corner of Maine and Maine. Mm. You know, they're going to (laughs) be in those areas like that. Yeah. And you just try to capitalize on location. Mm -hmm. I can set 100 traps and catch 10 animals. Or I can set 10 traps and catch 10 animals. It's location. Yeah. You've got to learn the habitat. And it's hard work. You know, uh, and there's a commitment to it, to do it right. And people have this misconception of trappers as being lazy and cruel and unethical. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's bad apples in, sure. in every group. Oh, yeah. But most of anybody's doing it now, I would for sure say is dedicated because there's not much of a market right yeah. now. And uh, they're doing it because they love it. And it's... uh you know, there's just a huge commitment to it. We're uh, our traps are targeted towards the animal that we want to catch. They're very small. They don't close all the way, that they're not cutting their feet off. Not, they've got this idea that you're gonna cut their foot off, you know, why would or you break want, their ankle? Why would you want to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't want to hurt them, right? You know, killing them is the the most less glamorous part of it. The the glamour is outsmarting them, you know, and beating them at their game. They do it for a living. And there's so much comes into play, especially on your canines. They, uh, the fox, the coyotes, they are your alpha predators, and they have an intelligence that's... uh, it's it can be pretty humiliating and humbling. Sometimes you, by the time you think you got it figured out, you'll get a smarty <laughs> that, that makes you have to start scratching your head. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of ability and knowledge comes into catching. It's not just throwing them out there and they come running and pour out some sardines and you catch them all. There. Yeah. There's just so much to it. And I can't make a comment to Tiger Woods on how to play golf you know I, I, that'd be the stupidest thing in the world i don't have a clue yeah you know but he's good at it and uh, he knows those little things same things with guys that trap they, they they're good at what they do and they know it and they're 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 very efficient
1: yeah and you're saying you're kind of making that point to say people tell you how to trap and or they don't have a clue or why you should or shouldn't yes. do it and you're like well,
2: what? What do you know? Yeah, what are you basing that on? <laughs> yeah, Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw you a know? movie once. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: So we talked Beaver. What What is kind of the next step? Like if you're ta- if we're ranking like ease to a mm-hmm. little bit more difficult. If we do three, so we got a Beaver's easy. What's kind of a middle ground to like kind of step up your game a little bit, and then we'll finish with like this is a pretty
2: wily coyote or this is a yeah. tricky animal to catch. You know your uh, your coons raccoons. Uh, the possums, those are all real easy. They, um, what about otters? Otters are, uh, where you find them. Okay. They just, they're like beavers, they're incidental. You know, you you will find certain slides and crossovers where they're going over a levee or something that you knows an otter and mm-hmm. you'll catch them, but usually it's incidental. But, um uh, they can become, um, uh, trap shy to those 330s and avoid them. Beavers, too, especially. Yeah. Uh, if they go to seeing a few in a colony wearing a bright, uh, necklace, you know they'll they'll figure it out pretty quick. Yeah. So they, uh, you got to change up your tactics, and uh, it's not automatic. Um, the next thing would probably be your fox and coyotes. They're, they're they're tough. They they can be. And as I was young, I thought it was like I really admired those old trappers that were good at catching numbers like that. But it's not that they're that smart, it's learning what they like. Mm. Mm. And I, I set in on a demo one time in the uh, late 70s of a father and son that were catching a 1,000 red fox a year. And it was just game-changing. Their explanation of their locations and the simplicity of their equipment. They streamlined everything. And it was, uh, and they did that for 30, 40 years. They caught a thousand fox a year, just. Wow. And still to this day, I talked to one of them yesterday, and that's another deal the connection, you know. Yeah, the uh, community. I, his dad has since passed away, but he still, I, I buy his lure and sell it in, a, in the shop and a few other of his things. But you just have to know what those things are wanting to do because you can't make them do what they don't want to do. It's um, trapping is so you're limited it at your outcome by your ability and your location. That's it, it's hard to explain. People think it literally it's just automatic mm-hmm. and you catch them, but it it's not. It's very, very hard. And you've got to learn your animals. Yeah. Um bobcats are easy they just have such a huge home range that uh i can catch almost every cat if i find sign they're gonna be back if he don't get run over on the interstate i'll probably get him okay if i'm there long enough yeah but if i miss him he won't he won't mess with me again he's gone they don't scavenge like a fox a fox is a scavenger, a cow's a scavenger. They'll rob from another one where one's hid food, they'll get it. Cat won't do that. He mm-hmm. wants his own. He'll kill it just for fun. He'll, a, a female will kill it for the little ones and uh, let them play with it and stuff like that. But they don't have that scavenge mentality where they'll peck around till they get caught like a fox. Mm-hmm. You've got to get them on the approach or you won't get them. And he won't come back to that set. Even if he, in 10 days, if he comes back, he don't care. He's already checked it out. So you got to, got to get them that first time. They're really particular. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So are they, are they your highest level of difficulty? They're my, is it...
2: that my passion's uh, catching coyotes, mm-hmm. but I love catching cats because they're just neat. Uh, they're an animal that there's a lot of them, but you don't see them. You know, it's like black bears. Yeah. You know, we've got a lot of black bears, but you very seldom ever see them. Mm-hmm. It's just the way th- that you might go by a thousand of them in your lifetime and never see them. They mm-hmm. just they just sit there and watch you go by. Yeah, and it's they're they're neat. They uh, I don't know. They're literally not hard to trap, but the coyotes can be. Yeah, and you can get a smart one that you've got to really be on your toes to get mm-hmm. them. You got to change up. They can't. They will, they'll pattern you like nothing I've ever seen. They'll, they'll the coyote will? Yes. They'll figure you out. And on these ranches that we trap out west, you've got to change up your methods every now and then and do different types of sets. And uh, you asked about sets. Um, I do a lot of what's called a dirt hole, and it's, it kind of mimics where another animal has hid some food. And uh, you use uh, a little bit of bait, but mostly some scents that uh, lure Mm -hmm. that have a a longer calling. They can smell them for a long way. Okay. And that kind of triggers sometimes a breeding response. This time of year, uh, late January, early February, the coyotes and the bobcats are breeding and and the fox in February. So you'll use a gland lure that makes them – the males are prowling, looking for females – and those gland lures will attract them, and you can do that on a scent post or even at a dirt hole type set, but I'll change up and do a lot of scent posts because they're really covering a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. They're not worrying about eating so much right now. They're worrying about breeding.
1: Yeah, and on a dirt hole set, that's typically a foothold buried Mm -hmm. under some dirt that you've shaken on top and kind of concealed yes and you're you're wanting them to put their nose down in there check it out and then put a paw in the foothold yeah
2: you catch them on the approach as they're coming to check that hole out where the smell is coming from and uh, the trap has to be bedded where if he happens to step on it it doesn't give because mm. if it moves the least little bit they'll dig it up because they already think there's something buried there that they want to eat or they want to check it out and see if it's something they can breed. So if they feel that trap move under the ground, they'll just, out of instinct, dig it up. And uh, once they ever do that, they'll start associating that with the next set, that if it has that similar smell, and they can make your life miserable till you ever catch them. Mm. And fox are the worst about that. They they can figure it out in a heartbeat. Coyotes a little bit. Yeah, But... Uh, I really pride myself in being able to catch old coyotes that have seen it all. Uh, Those things have been persecuted in Texas (laughs) since the beginning of time, (laughs) and they they cannot get them all. You know, I mean, there's there's probably as many coyotes as there ever was, and uh, but they've seen it all. And when you can go out there and catch them in numbers, it's uh, it's just an accomplishment that few people can do yeah and what we deal with here in the ozarks in ways it's a lot easier we're dealing with animals that don't move as much those animals out there have thousands and thousands of acres that all looks alike we're dealing with smaller patches that have habitat that will carry a certain amount and then you might go several miles of nothing but oak trees and ridges that's kind of just holding the world together, you know? Yeah. There might be some coons on it, but the habitat controls what's there, so we have to kind of travel a little more here. And And I love small farms, and, and you need a mix, and that's what people don't understand now. And a lot of the land practices now, you need a mix of everything. You need... Some grown-up fields for the quail, mm-hmm. and all the predators need that for what they're hunting. You don't need all pine trees, but you don't need all oak trees either. Right. But there needs to be a mix. You know, you need a few food plots thrown in there. Uh, a mix is good. You just can't have all of one thing. Right. And anything do good. Yeah. It, it's amazing how everything thrives with a mix.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about with different biologists and and. Um, just conservation people, people who believe in prescribed burning and it's good and native prairies and mm-hmm. upland savannas and just the biodiversity mm. benefits of, yes. of having all that. And to even hear you know another person yet again saying you need a mix, you yeah. need that biodiversity for a for a healthy wildlife population uh, to yeah. thrive. It's just an, you know another I don't know
2: yeah. confirmation of mm-hmm. all that. Yeah, there's nothing spurs life like a fire or a clear cut. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you need that new growth, and that just spurs nature to bring it on. Yeah. And a a fire the next two, three years is as good as you can get. And I've seen deer in places that after not so much a complete clear cut, but a real good thinning, it's amazing. It opens the canopy up. You get all kinds of new growth, and it just – everything thrives mm-hmm. the the bobcats the deer the turkeys everything it's uh you got to be kind of cruel and and cold-blooded sometimes and just lay into it because you think you're really doing some harm especially with the fire but mm-hmm. it it really helps everything yeah. in the long run
1: yeah um did you was there one more uh animal that's like the toughest of the toughest to trap that you can think of or is it the cat
2: Probably cat okay. because of the, just their nature, okay. you know?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we hadn't left something off the table in case there's, like, this is the one that, like, it always gives me a hard time.
2: Mink are tough. Yeah. But uh, during the, their de- the Depression years, mink and skunks were t- – guys could make uh, with one animal what a guy working all month could make. Even during the Depression, there was a, a huge market for mink and skunks. And that carried through with the mink until the late 70s. And I knew some old mink trappers that they carried it to the grave. Yeah. They wouldn't tell you a thing. <laughs> they they thought it was a secret now, and they wouldn't let it out. I mean, if that's yeah. how they made yeah. their living, they hey, made it good. I mean, yeah. it makes sense. Like, yeah. Oh, I'm not they sorry. They want everybody had- to know. I say, hey, Ray, how do you catch those mink? Oh, feller. He'd say fuller. There ain't nothing to it. You know, well, well tell. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not doing it. Tell me how. Yeah. yeah. But mink can be kind of tough, but again, they're they're where you find them mm-hmm. and it's a water animal. Yeah. So they just uh they move a lot, you know, and they're little killers, boy. They yeah. they're death on stuff. And if one ever gets in your chickens, you'll be out of chickens.
1: Man, I I remember when I was I was probably 9 years old and I was out fishing a pond near Clarksville with some family friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a pond on a farm nearby a creek. And my brother and I, we had been fishing all morning. And we had probably five or six fish in, in this little five-gallon bucket. And we put <laughs> some water in there. And, man, we were so excited to be catching fish. We were going to take them back and have mom or dad, you know, flam and mm-hmm. we were going to eat them. And we went back to the house real quick to grab some, like, chips or water or a snack, something like that. We came back. 15 minutes later, every single fish in our bucket was gone. Wow. And we, you know, we're like, what the heck did they jump out? We, you know, we didn't know what was going on. Well, about 10 minutes later, we see two mink oh, across wow. the way, going mm-hmm. across the pond and up by the creek. And I was like, that son of a gun took our fish. Yeah. You did their work for him that day. Yeah. It was a free lunch. You know, they yeah, they were so happy about that. Maybe two last things. Mm-hmm. Talking about the the benefits of trapping. And I think more closely related are hunting and trapping than someone who maybe fishes and, and traps. I think those things don't overlap a lot um, necessarily. But I'm curious, talking about mink, talking about otter, mm-hmm. these are predators in creeks and water sources. And I'm talking to my fly fishermen here. We fly fish. Mm-hmm. We, we chase a lot of smallmouth bass. And I'm wondering, thinking about, the benefits that you could do by trapping otter off of a fishing hole that you know holds a lot of smallmouth in there have you ever done anything like that or seen population booms of fish from trapping water animals or any kind of benefits like that
2: i'm more of a mountain trapper okay so i have documented huge successes on land trapping but in the water trapping yeah there's a huge plus the uh Trout farms, or not trout farms, but uh, the trout docks, like on the White River, mm-hmm. when those otter move in with them, you know, they're just working alive. And they'll get in, even in stock ponds, you know, and just wipe out every fish because they've got, you talk about fish in a barrel, that they've got them in mm-hmm. the pond. Yeah. And uh, the, the catfish farms, you know, those guys just literally hate them. So uh, I don't want to wipe out anything, but you've got to manage – you know if you're trying to make a living at it like those catfish farmers those guys want the otters gone yeah but to answer your question on my background on the ranches that i trap out west those are uh, hunting operations right they they hunt quail turkeys and deer yeah and the guy that i trap mostly for has been in that business for years and years and he cannot believe the difference. He calls it his recruitment of animals for the next year is way better than ranches that I never trapped years ago. Mm. And you notice it surprisingly quicker on the deer than you do the other stuff. Really? In in two years... And you're trapping cats and coyotes? Cats and coyotes. But we also trap the the coons and possums and skunks. Okay. And, and, uh, that type stuff too, which helps your quail and your turkey. But there's almost an instant notice in deer numbers; their their fawn crop just blows up in the survival rate, hmm. and it's a, it's an amazing turnaround quickly on deer. the 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 bobcats and the coyotes are a, such a huge predator on the deer that people really don't. And I think even more so on adult deer than people realize. The University of Alabama did a study on one breeding pair of coyotes. In a thirty-day period, they put cameras on a den. They had pups, and they were in that thirty days. They brought in seventeen baby deer, no and 30 deer in thirty deer in thirty days. No way, seventeen baby deer, Just a single breeding couple, two two coyotes. Yep. Wow. And so we noticed instantly an increase in the deer and the landowner did too now everybody knows turkey numbers have plummeted Mm -hmm. quail numbers have plummeted the quail partly on habitat loss but and partly on disease but the other is predators Mm -hmm. and it took about probably five years of every year trapping those ranches to see an increase in turkeys, and now it's like it was in the '80s when I would go out there, and we have videoed. It looks like the ground's moving mm-hmm. with turkeys moving up a ridge. No way! It's like it used to be again. And quail this year, and it's been like six years for the f- quail to finally. When, every year, every day we get into coveys of quail, and it got to where we'd never see a quail. Yeah, and now they're. They're back almost not as much as they were in the eighties, but they're definitely better. And that's from catching the the nest traders, the possums, the coons, and the skunks. Yeah.
1: And and at this rate, if you're back there every year, do you just do you expect to continue to see those quail rebound and and do better year after year after year?
2: Yeah. There's a carrying capacity, you sure. know, of of everything, but in reason the quail ought to still keep coming if they get the type of weather that they need, you know. Yeah, and, they're very weather dependent. Yeah, but those guys out there, they they do everything they can to provide them what they need in their ability. Nature will take care of the rest, but they try to have a few feeders out there for them to help them. Mm-hmm. And uh, but main thing is controlling the predators, and and then they do a lot of habitat improvement, mm-hmm. so that helps too with uh, brush hogging in certain places and then leaving it. And you know, it's a it's a management tool. Yeah, but it's a definite. Uh, plus yeah and it's yeah. um uh, I, I really wish people would just give it a chance i've never taken a kid that didn't just love it and it's almost like christmas every day mm-hmm. you uh you can't wait to see what you got the next morning right you've
0: know? you spoken to management a lot in this episode and i know kyle and i with different guests have talked i mean this topic now for hours and hours and hours right but the thing that that is hard to understand until you're Either biologically educated in it by somebody who who studies this for a living, mm-hmm. or have experienced it personally on some property, is the whole argument of if if man would just leave animals alone, it would all level out and, and be perfect. Is a good argument if man was not a part of the equation. If we weren't here, <laughs> right yeah. mm. yes, we and have
2: taken so much of their habitat. Mm-hmm. We literally have to help them in certain ways. If I, you know, I think wolves are okay. But I think they've done more of a disservice by to the elk and the moose than anything that could have been done, and I'm not going to get on that. You know, I know that's, that's a really that's big news. That's right now. a touchy <laughs> deal. But you know, we we like the elk, we like the the moose. You know, but mm-hmm. those are the first things to go. But they said, well, they were always there. Well, we weren't here mm-hmm. to the point that we are now. So. The balances aren't the same, you right. know. Well, and
0: and Ferrari in the Ozarks, I like the deer and I like the quail and I like the turkey. Mm-hmm. I also like the coyotes and I like the bobcats sure. and I like the skunk and I like the raccoons. You know, I like I like the fish. I like the otters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about <laughs> walking through the woods and you don't see the animals, but they see you. They're I'm there. Kind of obsessed with the idea that anytime you're outside, like there are animals that are around and oh, watching yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Even if, if you don't see them, doesn't mean it doesn't mean they're not right. in in the landscape and I mean, Arkansas's otter limit daily, I can remember reading it in a little book as a kid and be like, How in the world? Like there's no way there's this many otters. Mm-hmm. But there are. Yes. And uh I, I, I love the balanced approach and even trapping as a technique, as a supplement to prescribed burning and good land management and mm-hmm. good biology and good hunting and as a recognition that we're at a place across the whole US now where you can't you can't say, Well, just remove man from the yeah, equation, turn them loose and let them go. And pretend like yeah. that's going to work. Cause that's, yeah. that means you who's saying that you need to move. <laughs> you can't be there anymore. Right. Yeah. And we um, have to
2: live in this world. You yeah. Know?
0: And, and trying to, trying to do it in a way that is ethical and respectful mm-hmm. and careful and considerate of the balance as a whole. I just think is a, is a way, so it's a way better and more honest approach than right. just kind of pretending that it doesn't happen. Right. Even at the same time that you're, you know, you could pretend that meat production doesn't happen, or yeah. you could pretend that where you get your veggies from isn't actually where you get your veggies from, but that's right. where you're getting them from. It's, I don't know. I just yeah, just over here soaking it all in, and just kind of want to end the episode even with yeah. like it's a balance. Right. It's not a. It is. We're out there just to get everything. No, we'll, we'll never and that's get everything. the furthest no. thing
2: from my intentions or any trapper is to catch them all you know we 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 appreciate and Mm -hmm. respect those animals we want a healthy number and we want to catch the same amount every year you know it's just what we like to do you know they say well you're killing them well yeah but it's okay to kill them because you're trying to save the deer and the turkey but they're killing the deer and turkey but it's okay for you to kill them you you know you got to manage it and fur harvesters it's a trapping organization they have a a slogan or a, a saying that the cruelest thing you can do to nature is not manage it. And in and in our world, that is true. Mm-hmm. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the National Wild Turkey Federation, have done more for those animals and many other animals than any anti-hunting group in the world will ever do. But the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Turkey Federation, the different trapping organizations, they literally care about the animals. Mm-hmm. And they want to manage them and see that they do well, Yeah. you know, and they're not playing on people's emotions and putting some little—I I hate seeing those animals mistreated, those dogs they put on those commercials with yeah, the, the yeah, little yeah. crying puppy. That's awful, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, people are mean, you know, and they shouldn't treat them that way, but trapping is not mean or cruel. It, it's done properly. It has to be done. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And you're saying undoubtedly it works. Like if as a management it's tool, it's it's at this point like yeah. it's it's not debatable. No. You've seen it firsthand, the studies have been done. And
2: every biologist in every state will tell you the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any laws that have been passed to stop it has been politically and emotionally done, not biological mm-hmm. or by science. It's been by some opinion that wasn't backed by science. Any biologist will tell you that this is a viable tool that has to be done. Yeah. And we we care about the animals. Absolutely.
1: Well, Mike, I've had a lot of fun. It's been great. Hanging out with you, mm-hmm. learning from you, listening to your stories. Um, Man, just have really enjoyed spending time and seeing your shop and hearing about your craft and and just the the wealth of knowledge that you have from doing this for so long. Mm-hmm. And to get to learn from you about trapping here in the Ozarks, a guy who's been doing it for 50-plus years, like I said, I don't know that there's a better guy to, yeah. to learn from. Thank you. So we really appreciate you. You're welcome. Don't buddy. be surprised
0: if I come asking for a trad bone the next couple of years. Whenever <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I get tired of the old compound. Yeah. You know. Everybody gets there.
1: If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure you let us know. Share this episode with a buddy who needs to start trapping, managing those predators, and leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you on the next one. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. For guest recommendations, episode ideas, and general questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or email us at theozarkpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, we can't forget to thank our good buddy, J.D. Clayton, for providing the amazing music for today's episode. Check out his website to see where he's touring next at jdclaytonofficial.com.